Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Back here, this is my second visit to VBM. Um, and I'm excited to, to share with you some learning today on um, a topic titled The Torah Case for Reparations, Making Political Sense of the Spoils of Egypt. And I've done something um, maybe from an educational perspective a little bit odd in uh, already spoiling the end just in the title by calling it The Torah Case for Reparations. Um, what we're really going to be doing is looking through the core biblical texts about the, uh, the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. And um, one element that I think too often gets overlooked in Jewish learning contexts about the exodus from Egypt, um, how the rabbis looked at it, how we understood it, and what its um, socio-political uh, repercussions are for today. I'll just say also for, for people listening, uh, if you want to learn more about this and uh, see a, a written processing of these same sources and many more that we won't get to, there's, uh, I wrote an article a couple of years ago called The Torah Case for Reparations. You can find it on medium.com. Okay, so every time the actual exodus is narrated in the Torah, from the earliest time it is uh, foreshadowed to its actual narration in live time, it's narrated to include the taking of property from the Egyptians. So the question that's hovering throughout our learning today is what can we learn from this, from this taking of property from the Egyptians about slavery, systemic oppression, and poverty, and about that repair? Um, I want to open, um, we're going to look at four core texts. And these are really the main four texts that actually narrate the Exodus um, in the Torah. So in Breshit, Genesis chapter 15, this is the first great reveal. This is the first time we ever find out that slavery is going to happen. Um, and the context here is that three chapters earlier, Avram, at age 75, is spoken to by a god he has no reason ever to have heard of or know anything about before and picks up without any discussion and moves to a different land uh, with his family to find out what he'll find when he gets there, sets up altars, he survives a, a famine, um, solves an international dispute, has some family issues, and he's really become uh, a celebrity uh, and fabulously wealthy and successful very quickly. But he has this anxiety that he's now some, somewhere over 75 years old, several years above that, and he's still childless. And he asks God, what, what's the deal? What's my legacy? Um, and God, in one of the trippiest chapters of the Torah, where there's this whole nighttime vision that Avram has and dividing animals in half and walking, it's a very uh, strange scene known as the Brit Benabitarim, the covenant between the severed pieces. In this context, God says to Avram, know for sure, yadoa teda, that your seed shall be an alien in a land not their own. Ger And shall serve them, and they shall abuse them 400 years. Now that's the first time that the Torah tells us that slavery is going to happen. If you think about this cinematically, it's like that first scene where you realize that Senator Palpatine is <laughs> becoming the evil emperor or anything like that. This is the big reveal that there's going to be a really, really hard period, that even though Avram has just been making it and like becoming a celebrity. In fact, his only anxiety here is he's not going to have children. 
And God starts to speak to that anxiety in a strange way by saying, by the way, so I don't, I'm not even going to tell you you're going to have seed, which is the only thing you're anxious about, but you're, you're going to have seed, and they're going to be an alien in a land not their own. So I've got good news, and I've got bad news. <clears throat> um, there's some dispute about how to parse the, the verse, because slavery itself wasn't 400 years, but it seems like the whole period in Egypt was 430 years, based on what Devarim says. So according to the Ramban, the way to parse this is, your seed shall be an alien or land not their own, and shall serve them, and shall abuse them that whole period, 400 years. Be that as it may. And also, that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward, they shall come out with significant property. I want to focus on that because we, just, we need to process and take in what does it mean that the very first time we ever find out that slavery is going to be a thing at all, it's slavery with property at the end of it. And to highlight again how important this is, that that is emphasized, Abraham is not anxious about property. He's wealthy. He's anxious about one thing. Am I going to have children? Do I have a legacy? He's fabulously wealthy already. Uh, so wealthy that when he solves a world war in chapter 14 and uh, the, the, the king uh, wants to give him lots of treasure for, you know, in gratitude for his... Um, his heroism, and he says, I don't want to take a red cent from you, lest it be said that you made me wealthy. He's already wealthy. He didn't need it. He had the privilege of being able to, to do that. And this is what God wants to emphasize to him. You're gonna, your, ancestors, your descendants are going to be slaves, but don't worry, because they're going to come out with significant property. That's scene one. Scene two, um, we're now at the beginning of the book of Shemot. So... The beginning of this vision to Avram happened already. Uh, his descendants went to Egypt, Yaakov and his sons during the famine. Yosef becomes the finance minister of Egypt. Yaakov and his family are famine refugees who are welcomed into Egypt by a pro-immigrant regime and gives them status, um, land to practice their unique cultural practices with dignity. And they lived pretty successfully in Egypt for a long time. And then in the beginning of the book of Shemot, of Exodus, there's a regime change, and the new king did not know Yosef and is very worried about Israelite birth rates and starts rabble-rousing about um, they're going to become a fifth column and starts uh, 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 um, um, ginning up uh, hostility toward the Israelites <coughs> that leads into... Um, a partial genocide, a genocidal campaign against uh, infant baby boys, and, um, uh, and the beginning of, of slavery. Moshe grows up in, uh, as an adopted son. His parents are supposed to kill him. They don't. Sends him in the river. Pharaoh's daughter, in a shocking uh, act of solidarity and risk-taking, adopts this baby who sh whom she knows to be a Hebrew baby. She figures it out and uh, raises him in the home of the person who gave the edict to destroy him. Um, we don't know anything about his childhood. It's outside of the view of, of uh, the narrator of the Torah. Moshe comes out as a young adult, curious to find out more about his people, the Hebrews. He's uh, not so welcomed by them. They see him as like a do-gooder interloper, he kills an Egyptian man who is harassing a Hebrew, buries him in the sand, thinks nobody saw it. Next day, he realizes people saw it, and a warrant is out for his execution. So he's a wanted man by Egypt. He flees into Midian, saves this Midianite shepherd woman from harassing shepherds. Her dad finds out. It's like, oh my God, sounds like a great guy. That's Yitro, the priest. And so he's now living as a Midianite shepherd married to a Midianite shepherd, uh, married to a Midianite shepherd in the home of a Midianite priest. And, um, and in chapter three, he's out in the middle of nowhere, way beyond the, the wilderness, Achar Hamidbar. And he sees this bush, 
and he looks at it long enough to realize that the this bush that spontaneously combusted is not burning up, and he goes to check it out because he's intellectually curious, and it turns out that God speaks to him from that bush. And in the context of this speech, God affirms to Moshe, you have ancestry, you have parents, and you have a mission, and you're going to go back to Egypt, and you're going to help lead your people to freedom, and because I've really heard their cries. Moshe is not really interested in this, fights back a lot. In the course of this back-and-forth argument with God, God responds to Moshe's reluctance to accept his assignment and go back to liberate his people. We're in the second source here still on page one, so uh, chapter three of Exodus. God says, and I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go except by a mighty hand, meaning you, this is going to be conflict. It's not going to be easy. You're going to get resistance. And I will send my hand, says God, and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that when you go, you will not go empty. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of the one lodging in her house silver items and gold items and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and upon your daughters, and you shall clean out the Egyptians. Venitzaltem et Mitzrayim. Struggled over how to translate this word, Nitzaltem. Literally, it seems to have the meaning of like removing something from one place to another. In modern Hebrew, it means to exploit, both in the positive sense and also in the negative sense. And it seems to me like you're really going to clean the clock of the Egyptians here. Um, so again, the, the very next time we hear, now slavery is a real thing, but the first time we hear that liberation is on its way, it's liberation with property coming. Then, eight chapters later, we're in chapter 11, there have now been nine plagues. God has thrown Egypt into freefall, into crisis. Paro still refuses to let Israel go. This is chapter 11 of the book of Exodus of Shemot. Adonai says to Moshe, one more plague will I bring upon Paro and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he was going to send you out of here. When he sends you out, he will completely expel you from here. Garesh garesh Now, verse 2. Speak, please, in the ears of the people that they ask each man of his neighbor and each woman of her neighbor silver items and gold items. The same thing that God promised was going to happen back at the burning bush. Now it's on the eve of it actually happening. And instead of God saying, by the way, remember, you have the opportunity to do this, God starts pleading with Moshe, please don't forget this step. And Adonai gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moshe was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Paro's servants, and in the sight of the people. You really get a sense of the urgency of that liberation has to come with receiving property from the Egyptians. There is no, almost to say there's no liberation without receiving property from the people. Why is God pleading? Some of the commentaries say on this, um, and look at the Torah Tamima on your own, I didn't put it on the, on the page here. Um, some of the commentators say like, well, why is God pleading? Usually, nah, please is a word said by a subordinate to a superior something we should say to God, not the other way around. And it's, God seems to have, and it's especially peculiar because it's in the Israelites' interest to ask for all the property. So why do they have to be begged with? Why do they have to be begged to do it? And I think the sense is that people have an opportunity for freedom. The, the, the parable that the Talmud tells is there's a, uh, a, a prisoner who's told, I can either break you out now or I can break you out tomorrow with 100 pieces of gold. And the prisoner said, let me out now. I don't care. Like, prisoner is not in any state to be thinking about the future right now. The whole meaning of slavery or incarceration has been to strip somebody of their future or their ability to plan. What uses 100 pieces? I just want to be out of here already. When actually, they'll be better served and more likely to maintain freedom in a, um, in a powerful way with those 100 pieces of gold. And similarly here, the Israelites might not want to be bothered. Let's just make a break for it as soon as we can get out here. Why don't we be bothered with all the stuff to lug? And God is saying, no, please, make sure they don't skip this step, Moshe. They really have to do it. We'll talk a little bit more about what else might be involved with the importance. So then it happens, our fourth text here, chapter 12, the very next chapter. 
This is in the middle of the slaying of the firstborn. It happened at midnight. Adonai smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt. A little bit later, Paro rose up in the night and he called for Moshe and Aharon by night and said, Get up, get out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go and serve Adonai as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said. Go and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people on to rush to send them out of the land. For they said, we'll all be dead. It's crisis in Egypt. Everybody is totally freaked out. They're, the smell of death is everywhere. The firstborn of everybody's dying. Just get out, get out. And the people took their, their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. You really get from that verse the rush, the alacrity. We, we tell about this at our seders. Why do we eat matzah? Because we had to rush out and didn't have time to wait for our dough to rise. That's that verse. We rushed out so quickly. And what happened after that? And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moshe. And they asked of the Egyptians silver items and gold items and clothing. And Adonai gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they let them have what they asked. They cleaned out the Egyptians. The rush for matzah wasn't the rush to leave Egypt, it was the rush to go door to door and take the Egyptian property before leaving. The liberation is totally bound up with receiving property. As if to say, when we talk about the story of the liberation from slavery in Egypt, we're really not talking about just the liberation from slavery, it's the liberation from slavery with reparations. Um, now I'm a bit over, uh, for the moment, I'm a bit overdetermining it by calling it reparations. We're going to challenge that momentarily. But I do want us to think about, well, what is the purpose of all this property that the Israelites are commanded to be taking here? Why is this so important to God, both as a narrator of the Torah and as a character in the narration who's urging the people, urges Moshe, tells Abraham, when Abraham is not nervous about money, by the way, you're going to get property, tells Moshe, by the way, when, you know, when liberation happens, they're going to get property. Moshe didn't ask that. The night before it happens, God begging with Moshe, saying, please make sure the people don't do it. Don't forget to do it. So why is the taking of spoils or the taking of, of, of property so important, so core an element to this Exodus story? I want to notice, if you look at Roman numeral 2 here, the bottom of page 2, um, this story isn't just a story. It becomes translated, I think, into law. So in the book of Devarim, chapter 15, we're now 40 years later. The Israelites have been free. They've been to Mount Sinai. They sinned. They're punished. They're, they've stayed in the land for 40 years. They're now on the cusp of crossing into the land where they're going to have sovereignty and responsibility to manage a fair and just society and economy. So anticipating that people will sometimes be made economically vulnerable, Moshe commands the following law. Chapter 15, verse 12 of Devarim, Deuteronomy. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, be sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you send him free from you. And when you send him free from you, do not send him empty, Furnish him liberally from your flock, and from your threshing floor, and from your wine press, of that which Adonai your God has blessed you. Give to him. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Adonai your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. Now, what, let's think about this in kind of a real politic. What is the context in which a fellow Hebrew might be indentured to you? I mean, it's usually going to be a debt situation. So one of the, so you're a landowner. You're not necessarily loaded. You might be. You might just be, a, you know, you have your plot of land. Everybody got a plot of land at the beginning. What's the context in which somebody becomes uh, indentured? Either they stole from you and don't have the resources to pay back, and so they pay it off with labor. Or somebody borrowed money from you and defaulted on the loan, and you can't pay it back. So think of yourself, imagine for a moment, you're not loaded, and you're not an exploitative business person. You're 
a middle class person. You've got a you've got a house. Thank God you've been you're doing fine. You you make a living. You're doing okay. You try to be generous and give tzedakah to. And somebody needed a needed help. They're having a hard time. You gave them a loan. It stretched you a little bit, um, but you gave them a loan. And they defaulted. They couldn't pay back. The fact that they needed a loan in the first place was those problems didn't all get solved right away. And so they need to pay off that debt with labor. Or maybe they even stole from you. And let's say they stole a lot, or they defaulted on a big loan. And if you were to monetize that on the labor market, it might be nine years worth of labor. And the Torah is telling you that I'm placing a cap. And that would be a big debt. Usually it would probably be less than that. But if it is a big debt, it's capped. There can't be any more than six years worth of like repayment. And if this person still owes you money after that, too bad. That's the end. And not only that, even though they haven't fully paid you back yet, when you send them free, you've got to give them lots of stuff. Now, I imagine all sorts of, of property owners, tycoons as well as small business owners, I imagine like a PAC-supported, like big PR campaign against this law saying like, this is really unfair. I haven't even been paid back fully. Why do I have to, um, why do I have to give all these freebies to, uh, to this person? And I think what the Torah, what I would like to draw your attention to is look at verse 13. When you send him free from you, do not send him empty. <clears throat> that verse, I think, is an echo <clears throat> of back in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush, in verse 21, when God said to Moshe, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that when you go, you will not go empty. <clears throat> that same word, reikam, empty-handed. And here, the Torah is alluding to that and translating that story into law and saying, going forward, even in conditions that were much less oppressive, we're not talking about a full-out slave situation here. We're talking about an indentured debt payment system here. Even there, we understand how poorness can be manipulated and exploited into structural poverty. We understand that the conditions in which a person stole or asked for a debt for a loan in the first place <clears throat> were conditions of structural inequality. And we understand that the monetizing of the repayment through labor is always going to happen in conditions that are favorable to the landowner and not favorable to the indebted person. And the Torah is saying that real economic justice is to interrupt the cycle, to make sure that poorness, poorness can happen anytime. A fire breaks out, you, you know, your store burns down. You have a bad crop, there was a, you know, we did the same farming practices, but some locusts attacked my field and your field just a, a kilometer away was spared. Little things can happen. Poorness can happen. We can't let it become structural poverty, which becomes a form of slavery. And so here we translate the lessons of the reparations from Egypt. Do not send him empty-handed. And in case we don't get the connection, the Torah makes it very explicit here in verse 15. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. <clears throat> I, the landowner, might think, what's that got to do with it? This person hasn't been an evid to me. They've been an indentured servant paying back a debt. I didn't, I'm not Pharaoh. I didn't institute a, I would have been very happy for this person to pay me back with money right away from, I didn't want them to pay me back with labor. That just created more work management. Yes and no. The Torah says no. The lessons of slavery translate much deeper into like, into economic justice and how we run our economy. Um, the Torah doesn't say a whole lot of times to remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. It says all the time, remember that you are an alien in the land of Egypt. 
That's on like 36 or 46 different laws in the Torah. The Torah says, remember that you were, you were undocumented, you were an alien, you were a sojourner, you were a, 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 an immigrant in the land of Egypt. That period at the beginning of uncertainty. But remembering slavery says it about Shabbat and the Ten Commandments. It says it here. It says it in one or two other places, and that's it. It's really a unique thing. One of the main messages of slavery is reparations at the end. That somebody who even in a low-grade kind of enslavement of indentured uh, life has to be given startup wealth so that they can get on their feet um, properly. And you look at what Rashi says on the next page to make it very clear to us. Remember that you were a slave. What does that mean? Why does the Torah emphasize that? And I, God, furnished you and gave to you twice over. <coughs> from the spoils of Egypt, the spoils of the sea. After the Egyptians drowned, the tradition presumes that all their like, fighting gear and armory washed up, and the Israelites took it all also. So you've got to furnish and give to your departing indentured servant twice over. Um, that's what Rashi makes very clear from that. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Um, now, I've sort of overdetermined this a little bit by using the term reparations already, and I can imagine skeptics, including myself, when I was thinking through this, thinking, well, are these really reparations? I mean, there's no claims committee. It's not really how reparations play out. It's just a, there was a property grab. How should we understand them from a legal or moral perspective? Does this have anything to do with future geopolitics? Um, before we do that, I just do want to make one kind of comment that may not be totally where we're going, but we think about what it means to, to end a, a term of indentured servitude with startup wealth so that a person can be secure and not fall back into the conditions that led them to, indentured, to be indentured in the first place. I just want to contrast that to um, the carceral state that we're in here in the United States today, which I think you could argue, if you're, if you're not a, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say for the sake of argument, an argument that is not aligned with a radical abolish all prisons, abolish the carceral state perspective, though I'm sympathetic to that position also. But even for a position that is more um, liberal rather than radical, a status position that accepts that there's going to be uh, a criminal justice system and a police system, there's going to be incarceration when people commit crimes. And then a lot of that has a certain comparison to a kind of indenturedness that happens when somebody has committed like an economic crime and has to pay back a debt, even if the debt to society. So a few years ago, um, on a Sunday morning, right around this time of year, um, I'd finished teaching my teen Beit Midrash class at my synagogue in Chicago. There was like the pre-Hanukkah fair with the gift shop and the shul was selling all the Hanukkah children's books and Hanukkiyot and candles and everything. So a lot of people milling around um, a little bit later on a Sunday than as usual. And uh, a certain gentleman who was not familiar with the congregation walked in um, looking a little bit confused or wasn't sure where to go and also looking a little bit potentially distressed and um, um, not, not so well put together. Um, his clothes were dirty and so on. Um, and I went over to introduce myself. Welcome, you know, welcome to the synagogue. You, I don't think you've been here before. You know, what's your name? Are you looking for anybody in particular? What brings you in? He said that he had been released from 17 years of incarceration three days earlier and he, the way that happens is he was dropped off in a park, given 10 bucks, goodbye, you're on your own. Now there were social workers who were assigned, and he, but he had to try to figure out how to navigate his way to stay alive. He had slept, it was December in Chicago, he had slept on a park bench across the street from this shul the night before, was having suicidal thoughts, didn't want to take his life, and saw that this was a house of worship and 
thought that that was his safest bet that maybe somebody could pray with him. Now, that story isn't, I only tell the personal anecdote because I think personal anecdotes uh, can, can bring to life things that are common stories. That, that story is a dime a dozen. And I just want to point out the contrast between you can't serve indentured servitude more than six years, and when they're set free, they have to be furnished liberally from your flock and so on, versus here's 10 bucks, goodbye. The internet had been invented in the meantime, you know, and it was December in Chicago. What were the conditions in which this gentleman could have avoided slipping back into the carceral system? We begin to understand why rates of recidivism are so high. You add onto it all sorts of other things about people in public housing being barred from giving shelter to people who have felony records and so on. It's really like, where are you supposed to turn? Who's going to take you in? Who's going to help you? So the Torah is saying right here, we want to cut that off. If somebody, somebody stole, somebody had to like pay back their debt, we want to cut off and make sure that doesn't become a cycle. Um, and I think even without our broader reparations context, there's a lot to learn from Devarim chapter 15. Okay, so back to our context. How do we understand all this property that the, our ancestors, the Israelites, took from the Egyptians? on the way out of Egypt. So there's a fascinating and piquant um, story in the Talmud Bavli, Masachat Sanhedrin, uh, Sadi Aleph, Amud Aleph, page 91a, really like addressing this question. Are these really reparations? Or am I over-determining this? So here's the story. There's like, it's in a series of stories of foreign nations suing the Jewish people in, at the Hague. It's not the Hague for them, it's Alexander the Great's court. I mean, Alexander the Great is, is in, it's interesting that they, they place this following story there, uh, A, because it's hundreds of years after Egyptian slavery is over, but also it's interesting because it's so deeply in the past from the rabbinic perspective. Even if this is a Tanaitic source, it's presented that way, but I'm not sure it is. But be that as it may, even if it's Tanaitic, the time of the Mishnah, Alexander the Great is a long time before that. And so this is really like telling a you know, George Washington cherry tree type story. But what Alexander the Great represents more than anybody else to, uh, to Talmudic readers is um, an international uh, judiciary that included both Egypt and Israel because his empire extended so broadly. And also a regime that achieved its power through force, but also justified itself through cultural achievements as well. There's this very ambivalent rabbinic interaction with Greece, that on the one hand, they were like barbarians, but they're not only barbarians in the way that like the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Romans are treated with, with uh, uh, just hostility as like just these like militaristic barbarians. The Greeks were a little more complicated because they had to grapple with mathematics and art and literature and the culture. So that's Alexander the Greek. So another time, this is the, the second story in a, in a string of stories. Another time, Egyptians came for judgment with Israel before Alexander Makedon, Alexander the Great. The Egyptians sue an international, uh, an international law. They sue at the Hague. So they said to him, it says, our Torah says, the Egyptians are quoting the Torah, and Hashem gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent to them. This is back in chapter 12. That's the end of the verse. Give us the silver and gold that you took from us. The Egyptians are saying, hey, wait a minute. Back in chapter 12 of Exodus, what I translated back there, there is, is uh, Adonai gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. The Hebrew word, that's all, let them have what they asked, is one word, vayash ilum. The root is sha'al, which means to ask, but it also means to borrow. And there's an ambiguity in the scene. Were the Israelites asking for stuff from the Egyptians, the Egyptians gave it to them because they were freaked out or they were moved by the Hebrews' cause? Or were the Israelites 
defrauding them and saying, lend us your stuff because we have this festival. We're going out of town for three days and we'll give it back to you when we come back. And then as soon as they run, they make a run for it and they're never going to come back. And the Egyptians are like, wait, what happened to all our stuff? So I left it ambiguous in the translation, Vayash Ilum, they gave them what they asked. But here, the Egyptians, hundreds of years later, are going with the latter interpretation. We, our ancestors lent you our stuff, and then you ran off. Give us the silver and gold you took from us. Geviha ben Pesisa said to the sages, give me permission and I will go and argue the case with them before Alexander. If they defeat me, say to them, you defeated one of our civilians. But if I defeat them, say to them, the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu has defeated you. This is a very interesting case. So Gavia ben Pesisa, to put it lightly, not a prominent character in the Talmud. Of course, nobody's prominent at this era, because it's, so, it's kind of the rabbinic prehistory. But he's sort of this role, this ambiguous role, as on the one hand, like the first Jewish lawyer, he's a civilian who's saying, let me, let me go and argue this case. So that way we can hedge. If we win, I won on the basis of our Torah. If not, you can ask for a do-over and a mistrial because I'm just this random idiot. Um, and it's, you wonder if this like already, is this setting up a continuation of a sort of like a, uh, a, a trickster folklore, trickster hijinks kind of tale, or is this representing rabbinic anxiety about the justice of our own cause might not be recognized by others, so we better hedge? Be that as it may, the story continues. They gave him permission, he went and argued with them. He said to them, Gavia makes his point in court, from where do you bring evidence? They, the Egyptians, said back from the Torah. He said to them, I too will bring you evidence only from the Torah, as is said. And the Israelites' residence, which they resided in Egypt, was 430 years. Just a couple of psukim, four psukim, four verses after the verse that they cited. Give us payment for the labor of 600,000 whom you enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. Now, aside from the fact that it's a bit of an overstatement because they were in Egypt for 430 years, slavery was 210 He's exaggerating it a little bit, but it's a very interesting countersuit in either case. Say, like, oh, you think that we owe, we owe you some money? You might expect the Talmud to lean in when they hear this interpretation of the word vayashilum, that like, they lent us to us. You deceived us. You lied to us. You might expect the Talmud to say, no, you ignoramus Greeks, you don't know Hebrew. Vayashi Lum doesn't mean Lent. Let me show you six verses in the Torah where it clearly means ask for a full-fledged gift. That's something that some of the medieval commentators do. They do get nervous. The Talmud doesn't even bother with that. Gaviyah <clears throat> ben Pesisa seems to accept their, uh, their linguistic argument that the Hebrews asked them for a loan. You're damn right we ran off with it. You want, you want to continue with that suit? Okay, let's try this. 600,000 labors, which is a sort of magic number in the Bible and the Talmud for like an innumerable number of people. Massive population you enslaved for hundreds of years. You want to start bring out your pencil and paper and calculate back wages? Who do you think is going to come out on top? Do you think we're still going to owe you money? Maybe, actually, by just letting it go with the property that you left with us, maybe you're actually getting a bargain. Seems to be part of the implication. Alexander the Great, Alexander Makedon, said to them, give them an answer. They said to him, the Egyptians, give us three days' time. He gave them time. They investigated. They found no answer. Immediately, they left their fields, their seeded fields, and their planted vines and fled. And that year was a sabbatical. The sabbatical thing is sort of a nice, like, happy ending answer to this. That, um, you know, at a time when the Israelites really needed a financial boost because they were faithfully observing the sabbatical laws and not harvesting, they got all this windfall of Gentile-owned fields that they could farm from. But the point seems to be at the end with this happy ending, even before the sabbatical thing, is that 
the implication is that actually it's not that we owe you Egyptians property. You owe us even more. The reparations we received were a drop in the bucket. And if we, even hundreds of years later, acquire more fields, that is part of our just due as well. But the core thing that's important about this Talmudic story is that the rabbis definitely understand the property that the Israelites took from the Egyptians on the way out as slavery reparations. No question about it. And perhaps this is fantasy, but the rabbis expect that the international community would understand them as that as well. By placing this in Alexander the Great's court, we are saying rhetorically and ideologically, reparations are valid. Even hundreds of years later when there are like questions and claims about it, and even if they are taken through chicanery, they're valid. Regardless of what are they going to do with them, what are they going to do with them? Good things and bad things. They'll build a mishkan and they'll also build a golden calf. But that's irrelevant. The Egyptians stole our labor. They owed us money. There wasn't going to be a claims committee. So by any means necessary, we took what we could on the way out. That's why it was so critical to God. Please don't forget this step. It's not real liberation without that. If you look at Rabbeinu Hanan El here, um, <clears throat> Rabbeinu Hanan El is a very interesting, important um, North African uh, 10th century, uh, 11th century commentator. And he expresses some anxiety about that, that, that the Talmud didn't have about this question of like, did they defraud them? Did they ask for a loan and then ran off with it? Or did they ask for like a full-fledged gift? Rabbeinu Hanan El wants to hedge a little bit. He's like, no, the meaning of ask here is not the same as, you know, asking or borrowing for kitchen utensils, which is a loan. Rather, no, 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 he was, asking, he was telling them to ask for outright gifts. The Holy Blessed One gave the people favor the sight of the Egyptians, so they gave to them. This wasn't deception, God forbid. On the contrary, this is all permitted. But now he hedges, because instead of leaving it there and saying, like, no, 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 Sha'al means ask for a gift. It was totally on the up and up. The Egyptians knew what was going on. But on the contrary, this was all permitted to them since, after all, the labor they had done for them was inestimable and the value of their wages knew no end or no boundary. Now, wait a second. Rabbeinu Hananel, which is it? Is it that there was no deception involved? They asked for gifts. The Egyptians gave them gifts. End of story. Or is it that it didn't matter whether they asked for gifts or not because Israelites were owed all this stuff. Rabbeinu Hanel's hedging. He's nervous about it, and it seems to be a kind of like, in the article I talk about it almost as like a, um, um, a respectability politics kind of thing about worrying about other people seeing us engaging in deception for any, by any means necessary to attain what's ours and trying to hedge and have it both ways. But maybe he's actually saying something more profound, which is that even if the, Israel, the Hebrews asked for a loan where the Egyptians said, yeah, you can borrow our stuff. They knew exactly what was going on. If you've been part of a culture and a society that enslaves people for 200 years, and then there's a revolution happening, and they come knocking and they ask for your property, you know exactly what's happening. And they would have to be totally drunk on their own criminality not to process what was going on. And listen to this fascinating line at the end of Rabbeinu Hananel. Isn't it Torah law that an indentured servant who served their indenture for seven years must be furnished liberally? As it is said, when you send him free from you, do not send him empty. Furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine press, which we saw moments ago in Devarim chapter 15. All the more so for the Egyptians who had Israelite labor for 210 years. Now, what is the legal argument that Rabbeinu Hananel is making here? Does he, by quoting Torah law, which is legislated to Jewish people, to Israelites, with their indentured servants in the land of Israel, does he mean to say the Egyptians should have known a law that will be given in the future at Mount Sinai to different people? That doesn't even make any sense. Why, in what universe does it make sense 
to justify the Hebrews taking stuff from the Egyptians and the Egyptians having to be cool with it because of a law in the Torah that hasn't even been given yet and wasn't given to the Egyptians even when it was given. So I think what Rabbeinu Hananel is, to put it generous, to put it uh, comically, was not dumb. He's one of our great sages. Rabbeinu Hananel knows that. I think what he's saying is that that law in Devarim has a kind of natural law effect to it, interrupting uh, cycles of of poverty and restoring economic justice is basically like a natural law. Like we have it codified. We have it um, uh, uh, framed in a, in a very specific way in our Torah. But the Egyptians were expected to understand that as a basic principle, regardless of having the Torah having been given or given to them. Um, and I want to just close um, this part by noticing that it's not just that reparations are the key part of the Israelite story. You know, the one thing that if Gentiles ask Jewish people about what's the key thing about the Jewish story, like what's the main thing that Jews can say, like we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and a great and almighty God liberated us. It's like the most basic kind of Ur text, core story that Jewish people and non-Jews know about the Jewish story. Passover Seder, every, you know, so many Jews do at least something for Passover Seder, um, telling a story from the Exodus. And what this is telling us is that when we actually look at the Torah, its cases, the story isn't liberation from slavery. The story is liberation from slavery with reparations. It's never just the story of liberation without reparations totally tied in. As if to say, there is no real liberation without reparations. And we see this, these echoes of reparations in ongoing Jewish liturgical practice. If you look at the Haggadah, and I have down here on the, at the bottom of page four, the beginning of the Dayenu poem, which is this like um, one of the most famous and beloved poems, pieces of the Pesach Haggadah. And this is toward the end of the Magid section where we really retell the story when we're nearing conclusion and about to introduce the songs of Hallel, when we actually reenact and celebrate the joyous songs of coming out from Egypt. And we have this amazing poem that lists all the different miracles, all the different wondrous things that God did for us, each one of which on its own would have been sufficient justification, dayenu, to say Hallel even though none of them would have been sufficient on their own. Like, it's not sufficient to part the waters if we don't make it through. But, but each one was a miracle on its own that would have justified saying Hallel. All the more so, with this long list of miracles, of course, we have to sing Hallel all the more so. So listen to how it begins. How many good steps, tovot, did the one who is every place, hamakom, the way we refer to God as the omniscient, the omnipotent, take for us? How many uh, miracles did God do for us? If God had taken us out of Egypt and not made judgments on them, dayenu, it would have been enough for us if that had happened that we would have to say halal. If God had made judgments on them and not done so on their gods, dayenu, if God had done so on their gods and not killed their firstborn, dayenu, if God had killed their firstborn and not given us their money, dayenu, if God had given us their money and not split the sea for us, Dayenu, etc., etc. Natan lanu et mamonam. This isn't, if it's been hiding in plain sight, it's because we're closing our eyes, not because it's hiding. At our Haggadah, there's another place where we, we cite Genesis chapter 15 in one of the core parts of Magid also. Um, it's in our bris ceremonies in a, in a more hidden way, in a more subtle way. But here, when we sing Dayenu, we are acknowledging that the receipt of reparations was an individual, unique miracle and something worthy of singing the songs of Hallel um, right alongside saving babies from genocide, splitting the Red Sea. Receiving, receiving reparations is a core, integral part of the Jewish story and something with, without which we can't even make sense of ourselves as a people. Reparations are as Jewish as the Pesach Haggadah, as liberation from slavery. And I would argue geopolitically 
And what it means then is that our sense of what it means to be a free people is to be a people who believes in the justice of reparations. That when a people has been exploited and wronged, there is no full liberation that doesn't come with reparations. And that has to be a starting point for Jewish politics. All sorts of questions can abound about how and in what way, what mechanisms. What happened in Egypt was obviously not the most ideal mechanism. But even there, if you need deception to do it, even that's going to be justified. And if people are uncomfortable with that, as some of our medieval commentators seem to have been, then all the more reason to pass House Resolution Bill 40 into law, set up a Congressional Claims Committee to actually research and manage the long overdue reparations for African Americans, for descendants of slavery, um, and other uh, systemic plundering in America, to do it in a systematic way, a clear way over time to make sure it's done in the most sustainable way. Um, and I'm open for questions, if people have questions. Yeah. Yes? At the beginning, I started thinking I never realized how materialistic God was. You know, everything had a, a prize. Yeah. Then I thought, no, this was very wise. Because by giving them means, it eliminated the, the frustration that might lead to their going another way. And, and it, would, it would keep them from listening to others and taking them away from, from where he wanted them to be, which was the children of Abraham. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I love that observation. And it's a tricky one, because like, if God thought that, it didn't necessarily work out that great, because with all the property, they also built a golden calf. Right. So sometimes it's like people are going to sin one way or the other sometimes. But and that that's temporary. Yeah. Well, yeah, because God killed a bunch of them, but, you know. Um, so that disappointment that comes to God seems to pervade. I think another way to read it is that, like, here, yeah, they made bad choices, not because they had money, but because they're people, and people make bad choices. But they were still owed what was theirs. And, and maybe what would have happened otherwise is without receiving reparations, they would have been more susceptible to further enslavement by other people or right. to turning back to Egypt. Right. And, and I think what it does understand is that poverty and oppression are, in a certain sense, even more damaging than idolatry. The cycle of, of servitude, of dependency on others, is one of the most profound um, crises and things to, to be avoided, such that God wants to avoid that at all costs, even though one of the things that might come out of this is when people have, yeah, when people have wealth, they do really terrible things with it. I'm not sure the golden calf is that much worse than all sorts of things that we do with money either, but that but what happens in poverty and the, the oppression of others is even worse. Well, it causes such desperation yeah. that logic sort of diminishes. And also I was thinking that maybe it was a pay-forward kind of thing where, you know, he promised, God promised Abraham that, that his children would have wealth, and but they have to share. Yeah. And so it goes on to the next generation yeah. and, and that it sets up a... Right. Maybe that's what's the beginning of tikkun olam. Yeah. An equitable economy is a translation of remembering that you were slaves in Egypt. Right. Really, the other place where it comes up is in the Ten Commandments. For Shabbat, having this day, even if you live in hierarchy, if you, if you enslave people or if you employ people, you can't have them serving you on Shabbat. There has to be a day where everybody looks at each other in the eye at eye level, and there's no hierarchy or subordinates. That's what Shabbat is about. Shabbat isn't about relaxation in the bourgeois, liberal, kind of Western sense. In fact, if you're bourgeois, if you're a property owner or you're liberal, Shabbat might be harder than the other days of the week. The other days of the week, 
if you're a property owner, if you're bourgeois, you might have a whole like support staff of people doing things for you. Shabbat, you can't. I mean, you got to do it all by yourself. And, but that is the true liberation. Um, and that's another context in which we're told, remember that you were slaves in, in Egypt. Shabbat is a rejection of that. And these are two of, I think, the only three or four places. I think in, uh, the, uh, the sabbatical law has, in one of the places, has remembering that we were slaves to Egypt, uh, slaves in Egypt. And I think there's something like very profound about that. What does it mean to remember we were slaves? Interrupting economies of hierarchy and exploitation. Interrupting poorness from becoming structural poverty. And reparations are the basic core piece of that. Reparations are not a radical concept. They might be considered radical in, in American and European politics, because Americans and Europeans are afraid of giving up their stuff. Maybe reparations were seen as radical to the Egyptians, too. Apparently, they were, because they sued in international court. Um, you know, sort of like how when Argentina nationalized its, uh, its oil, Spain raised like an international row about it without any context of the background of Spain's previous colonization of Argentina in the past. But now we're not going to have as much, our industrialists aren't going to have as much profit from it. So we're all upset. And of course, don't get started on like France and Haiti and who's been paying reparations to whom in the wrong direction. That's what the Egyptians wanted. The Egyptians were like France suing Haiti. And God's not having it. Judaism reparations are not a radical idea. They're just a basic core of what our story is. Um, when you've been oppressed, you get reparations. If you have, and even if you're not oppressing somebody, but you're, but you're controlling them, maybe even in a justified way, because they stole from you or they borrowed from you and you pay you a debt, you need to, you need to pay them reparations. Yeah, Shmuley. So aside from economic justice, where do we see in Jewish thought that racism is a problem? Meaning racism is a modern idea, so yeah. we're probably not going to see much of that pre-modernity. But where do we get the idea that we should care as much about wrongs towards people of a different race than us? Do, you, do we see this at all? Aside from abstract theologies like everyone's created in the image of God, yeah. is, is this tackled in any serious way that we know? Well, should I repeat the question for the yeah? Uh, Rav Shmuley asked a question of where in Jewish thought would we see the idea specifically along racial lines of racial justice and um, um, that we have responsibility to other people across racial lines. And I think that it, while acknowledging that race is a is a strange and modern concept. But I think the answer to the question is in, within that caveat. It's the opposite. The Torah talks about yeah. humanity. Right. Later on, capitalists and imperialists invented concepts of race in order to justify oppression. Torah would say, no, don't do that. So I don't think that I don't, I mean, certainly pre, like, pre the 18th century, you're not going to see, or however you date it, you're not going to see discussions along racial lines. You do see plenty of, of stuff that you see in lots of pre-modern literatures of people in one culture meeting people from a different culture and remarking that they look strange. And you see that in Middle Eastern literature, you see it in European literature, you see it in African literature about encounters with people of different cultures. They look strange to us. You see people valuing phenotypes that are familiar to them over phenotypes that are unfamiliar. So that kind of stuff, including stuff that would strike us as racist, appears in rabbinic literature. But uh, uh, David Goldenberg has done, I think, very good work on this. I would, the book I would recommend is called The Curse of Ham. Curse of Ham. Um, about like racism and slavery. You would argue that oppression along, along racial lines is a product of capitalism. Certainly pre-capitalism, white folks are oppressing people of color before we have these modern labels. So that, you know, that, that I, I do think that racialization as we see it now and capitalism grow hand in hand 
as one thing. There are people who have done much more work on that than I have. I'm, I don't want to speak out of turn. But basically, you know, the capitalism as we know it comes on the scene through colonialization and through enslavement and through then racializing other people, turning all sorts of universal earlier um, wonderment and sometimes fetishization of people who look different for me. Like when, oh, we're all in a place and we go and meet people who look different and we're curious about that or we think that they're funny looking. That stuff happens in all directions. But when the balance of power is shifted through colonialism, my understanding is that's when race as we know it in the modern world and certainly in America um, and, and in Europe comes up. I think there are a lot of people who talk about like, you know, you really can't properly address racism without addressing capitalism or vice versa. Um, so, so last question, sorry. Yeah. So would it be safe then to say that actually Jews would have more of a racist problem in a post-capitalist era or in a well, not Jews have. I think racism, as we know it, is a cap is a is a phenomenon of capitalism, which isn't to say that it doesn't also exist in anti-capitalist cultures and like more socialist cult countries. There still have plenty of racism, but the but the invention of race, as I understand it, and again, this is not my area of expertise. The invention of race is uh, coterminous with the invention of capitalism. Now all this is, and it's like anachronistic to say like what is, is the Torah capitalistic or socialistic? And like I definitely have a lot of comrades with the Torah is socialistic. Well, I don't, I mean, that's, that's just as anachronistic because Torah literature and all of rabbinic literature is developed well before there's a notion of a welfare state or, um, or capital as we, know, as we know it either. There's markets and so on. So I don't want to be anachronistic. But I do think that, um, I mean, if, if you feel like there's insufficient Torah literature about that, you know, explicitly anti-racist Torah literature, why would we always, do, I mean, in your question, you said, like, aside from general things about being created in the image of God or whatnot, it's like, well, maybe the reason for the lack of anti-racist Torah literature in the classic sources is because racism qua racism hadn't come on the scene yet. That's much later. And it's going to take Torah literature a while to catch up with it when you have power. So I think it's a little bit of an anachronistic, an anachronistic question. I don't think the literature is super rich on the topic. Um, a lot of what Goldenberg's book, to my recollection, is doing is like taking claims of uh, core of there being like seeds of what becomes like the ideology of, slave, of European slavery and racism in the world in the Hebrew Bible and, and in early Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and actually trying to like turn down the volume on that and be like, well, I think we're reading stuff with, and, and actually trying to trace a little more cautiously the development of things. You definitely have have statements in the rabbinic sources that are like not nice about people who look different than the authors of the statement, for sure. In the same way as that like in African folklore and in North African Muslim or Christian or pre-Christian or pre-Muslim or you know European folk, like you have lots of folklore about like those people look different than us and here's the folklore about why they look strange as opposed to all people look different from each other. That you have. Um, and also should be dealt with. I think we should be doing constructive theology to um, move through that and pass that through our experience. Um, but if anyone, but I think the question of like, how, but how do we know this applies specifically in racial lines? It's like I, I don't think it applies specifically. I think there might there if there was like a slavery or structural exploitation system happening somewhere in the world that didn't happen along racial lines. I think the call for reparations. From, from a Torah perspective would be just as strong. Um, the fact is like in the place that we live here, the major, the major like call for, there are really two major calls for reparations. One that's gotten more political juice is to Africans and that's part of the whole history of colonialization and which 
the whole history of Europe's interaction with Africa has been plunder and exploitation. So it needs to be recompensed. The other comp more complicated one is with Native Americans, where like the basic grammar of that oppression has been through erasure and genocide, not about exploitation. And so the question of the, the form of the reparation there might be a little bit different. But, um, but throughout the world, wherever there's been plunder, there needs to be recompense. That's our basic story as Jews. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.